Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Nina Teicholtz. Now, Nina is the author of The Big Fat Surprise, which is the book that really turned sort of nutrition science and the science behind our nutritional guidelines upside down and, and opened up the book on it, so to speak, so people could understand the process behind it and how maybe the recommendations don't reflect the latest science and maybe they're not as clear as they're being presented. And that changed the life of millions of people. She's also the executive director at the Nutrition Coalition, and she's an adjunct professor at New York University. And talking to her is is a, a true experience because you learn so much more about guidelines, about committees, about how decisions are made, about how evidence is either uh, accepted or ignored, and more importantly, how that impacts our lives. I mean, on the one hand, you can say, why does that matter? Because I can still make my choices. But no, these guidelines affect so many people on so many different levels. And it's important to hear her message about why that is, and important to hear her message about how we can influence this and how we can make sure that these decisions are being based on evidence. And when there isn't evidence there, we need to know that. And it's not always success. We're not always winning the battle to to make guidelines more evidence-based. But as you'll hear, there is a progression towards that. Um, so it's a fascinating interview, and I wish I could interview her you know, 10 more times because there's so much more information there. But I think you're going to learn a lot uh, from Nina Teicholtz today. So enjoy this interview, and if you want the full transcripts, go to dietdoctor.com, and you can also see all our other prior podcast interviews. So enjoy this interview with Nina Teicholtz. Nina Teicholtz, thank you so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks. Yeah, well, you you have made quite a name for yourself over the years, starting with The Big Fat Surprise, your book that really turned the, the politics and the influence behind nutritional guidelines upside down. And this has created a, a windfall of sort of a new way of people to look at the guidelines and to say, maybe they're not as clear-cut and as evidence-based as we thought. Now, Talking about the guidelines in a way seems a little counterintuitive for a low carb community because the reason why people are going low carb and doing well and feeling better low carb is because they're going outside the guidelines and they realize they can do better than the guidelines. But yet the guidelines are still very important. So tell us a little bit about why guidelines are so important and your journey in understanding the faults in the process behind them. Well, it's such a good question because most of us, um, you know, even when we were following the guidelines, we don't even realize they're important. Um, we, we don't go to a .gov website to find out what to eat. Um, and I didn't think they were so influential either uh, until after my book, uh, I started to, I just got completely fascinated with them because there was, you know, the guidelines are issued every five years by the U.S. government, jointly by USDA and HHS. Um, and and I looked at the 2015 expert report that came out, and um, I mean, I read all 470 something pages of it, which I wish upon nobody. How long did that take? And oh, I don't know, <laughs> but you know, I looked actually looked at every single study that they were using to justify the guidelines, and I realized like there's no science there. Like, where's all the science that I've just spent the last decade of my life reading, studying? Like none of those studies were in there. Yeah. And and then I went back and looked at previous guidelines and, and, and their expert reports. And I was like, nobody's ever looked at any of these studies. What is, what's the deal with our guidelines? So 
there is this appalling lack of science in the rigorous science and the guidelines. And that is something um, that I think, you know, it's, it's, it's worrisome. I mean, why does a low carb person care at all about that? Um, so we have this terrible government policy and, um, but you know, I'm low carb. I fixed my health. You know, I, I don't, I have good foods. My family's healthy. Uh, and, and we're all sort of my, my little world is healthy. And, but here's what I found out about the guidelines. They control a tremendous amount. Um, they have this kind of straitjacket on, on, on so much of our economy and our professional medical and nutritional advice. So one way they control is that people should care about is that, you know, you, the, the meal your child gets at school, that's controlled by the guidelines, only 1% milk, right? And uh, it's 50 to 55% carbohydrates and half of those carbohydrates still have to be refined. So your kid is getting maybe donuts, um, and that's okay with the guidelines because they have to include in refined grains because those are the only ones that are enriched and fortified. And the, one of the things about the guidelines that is shocking is that they're nutritionally insufficient, meaning they don't meet adequacy goals. Okay, so school lunches, but maybe your kid goes to private school. That doesn't matter. What about if you go to the hospital? That food is controlled by the guidelines. You can find many pictures of people, you know, showing their diabetic, so-called diabetic meal in uh, in a hospital, and it's like seventy-five percent carbohydrates. Came <laughs> in as a cardiologist, I've seen that a million times. It feels like yeah. yeah and so you go to the hospital and you get sicker, and if you don't have somebody to bring you food, well, you're you're sort of stuck, right? And the guidelines dictate what the hospitals can serve. Well, it's it's it. it it comes down, the guidelines are downloaded by every medical association. So yeah. and the medical association establishes what's in hospitals or they set out recommendations and it's very hard to then go up against that. But I mean, one thing, the guidelines are really downloaded by dietitian or society, nutritionist society, nurses, doctors. And so they're just teaching the guidelines. Mm -hmm. So, and they're the ones in controls of the diet, the diet at summer camp, the diet that you send your kid to, um, the, if you, uh, all the cafeteria food, uh, you know, is pretty much controlled by the guideline by the guidelines and big, uh, big institutions. What about the military that's supposed to protect us? There's right. a study out that people actually gain weight while they're in the military. While they're being so physically active while in the military. While they're meeting. Yeah. Yeah. They're like doing amazing. You can't blame that on lack of exercise. Right. right. So, and they're, they're, whole system for trying to get people healthy, all based on the guidelines. Again, you know, they, they have a stoplight system, red, green, and blue, and, you know, big red stoplight in front of meat. This, this is going to bring you down. Big green in front of pasta. This is energy food, fuels you for, you know, for being a warrior. Well, you know, our military is, is really fighting a serious obesity problem. We, you know, and, and those are the people that we need, or maybe you have members of your, you know, family in the military. Um, so, you know, or if you care about, um, you know, women and infant children, poor people. I mean, they they are yeah. get they get those uh, wick baskets. There's no meat in them at all. They they've gotten rid of meat, no meat, no chicken, no fish, no no kind of animal protein is really? in there. Nothing. None at all. Beans wow. and peanut butter is what they're supposed to live on. And 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 I'm sorry, a carton of eggs, and 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 some milk and cheese. But there's no meat in the in the wick basket. So. You know, I could go on. It's like, it's very hard. Uh, even if you're committed to your diet and you feel like I've got it. Uh, and you know, you, 
anybody you talk to, any doctor you talk to, you go to your doctor and your doctor is trying to get you off that diet or right. you go to, <laughs> or you, you know, you go to your school and try to get a better lunch program there and they tell you, you know, you're crazy. So and it all goes upstream to the USDA guidelines. And everybody has downloaded the guidelines to their professional associations yeah. and those professional people work in all of our institutions and then they deliver the guidelines and they make it very hard for anybody to generate change. So, you know, people who, even medical doctors who want to say, teach low carb diet and they're part of a large medical practice, they're forbidden from doing that. They literally can't do it uh, because the medical practice fears liability because they're not right. teaching the gold standard dietary guidelines. Right. Liability and, and decreased funding that people would pull their funding, groups would pull their funding, whether you're, if your diabetes education program is, is sponsored by the ADA, you could lose funding by potentially by going low carb. So right. uh, you, yeah, it is amazing to hear you describe how far reaching these guidelines are. But here's the thing. Anybody could say, look, I went low carb. I felt fantastic. The guidelines don't work for me. Right. But then how can we say the guidelines are actually truly faulty? And that's where it took not a scientist, not a doctor. It took you, a journalist, to come in and say the science is wrong. So tell us that because you've been sort of criticized for not being a scientist. How, why should we believe you because you're not a scientist? But yet I think it gives you more, more strength as not being a scientist to come in and say, look at this. So tell us about how you see your role in pointing out the, the faulty evidence being used and the evidence being ignored from your background as a journalist. Yeah, I mean, this is field, not just journalists, but people really outside of the, the area of nutrition science have been able to make progress because inside the world of nutrition, it's, there's a kind of, there's a very strong orthodoxy about what is a correct diet and you really cannot challenge that. One of the things that my book documents is all the scientists who did try to challenge their own field's orthodoxy and their careers you know, their careers just disappear. Their research grants go away. They don't get invited to conferences anymore. They sort of, they're just sort of ostracized. So, and then the young people coming up see that and they're very careful to stay closely within the orthodoxy and not challenge it. So you see that the the movement that has been made in this field really comes from outsiders. It's had to. Yeah. We are the only people who can analyze and uh, who, have, who have freedom to really look at the science. So, and you would say, well, why, why a science journalist rather than, you know, why not a PhD or why not a, a doctor? And, um, you know, journalists are, you know, they're people like what we do is we research. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, a doctor is seeing patients all day. And, uh, you know, I had to spend like 10 years of my life actually like just sitting in a, in a whole cave and just researching and reading papers. Also, as a journalist, I have the ability to call up people and interview them. That's something that's quite unique. Right. And I can hear about their studies and I can hear the inside story of their study and I can hear about what the real, you know, what the what the thing I'm not even going to publish in my book, but I need to know is background. So you just have you have a unique, unique ability as a journalist, I think, to approach with objectivity, and I and I, and to you have the time and the tools to really do the research. And you know, I when I started was a vegetarian. I mean, I came with zero biases. I didn't even think I was going to write the book that I ended up writing. I thought I was going to write a book on trans fats. So, you know, I just I think it it um, and as a journalist, you're really trained to try to see all sides, of, you know, all points of view. I mean, scientists are trained to do that too, I should say, <laughs> but you don't always get it in any, right. in any field. But, um, the question about the guidelines, um, you know, why did I take this deep dive into the guidelines and find out about the, the evidence base? 
uh, was, again, it was simply that they're so powerful. They control so much of our food supply. And, um, you know, one thing I didn't even mention beforehand, but, you know, if you, the, 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 even for low-carb people, the, the absence of food products and, that we can buy is is because of the guidelines, you know, they like every food company wants to have a, a you know, when you flip over a food, a piece of any kind of packaged food and you look on the food fact panel, that all comes out of the guidelines. Right. And so like, they're not making food for, for us because they're targeting low fat specifically on that. On that's that. right. You yeah. want to see below this grams of sat, especially both saturated fats. Right. But, um, I just felt like it was an imperative to, that if we have this really powerful policy, you know, what is the science behind it, right? Yeah. Well, that's just kind of what I do. I like to dig into the science and, you know, and, and and one of the things that's kind of fun about being, although scary and also disillusioning, I would say, about being a journalist in this field is just that so much of nutrition science is so incredibly bad. <laughs> I mean, I have to, like, I don't... So what I don't do you mean, mean by that? that. I mean, is... I mean, like... You look at the data, you look at the, you know, you look at the conclusions, you know, most doctors or people who read studies, they just look at the conclusions or they look at the discussion section and they, you, know, you really have to look at the data because the data often say one thing and the scientist who's trying to survive and, 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 and do well in his field is saying something that completely denies the data. Yeah. Has a totally conclude a conclusion that's a complete opposite. Hmm. I can't tell you the number of studies that I read. I mean, I think one of the most famous one was... Um, I think it was the Pacific Rail study by Jeremiah Stamler, where he he did a study and it showed exactly. You know, he was a colleague of Ansel Keys, and he really wanted you know he be believer in the diet hard hypothesis that saturated fat and cholesterol are bad for you, and his data showed that saturated fat and cholesterol were actually good for you. And he wrote a, a, up his summary statement saying basically, uh, we're ignoring this data because other studies show that saturated fat and cholesterol right. are bad for you. Right. And that shows the tremendous bias, but also the pressure to sort of uh, adhere with the common theory or the central dogma and not go against it. Because as right. you documented in your book, those people who who dared to try and publish something different than what was commonly believed frequently wouldn't get more funding or they'd get their grants pulled or like these things right. really happen. They really happen. You're wondering, am I, am I reading a Sopranos episode or is this like yeah. true nutrition science? And it, it really did. And that's, yeah. that was one of the fascinating points of your book. I mean, it almost read like a, like a, a page Turner detective novel or something. Yeah. 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 It's a little bit. Yeah, like a nutrition thriller is yeah. what the economist said about it, which I like. Right. No, and often when I was interviewing people, I would, um, you know, I, I, people were so closed about, they were so afraid to talk to me. They were terrified to talk to me. Yeah. I, I felt like I felt like I was interviewing the mob, you know. I mean, I would get off the phone shaking like, wow. oh. But it is it is a kind of, it is an ugly world in terms of uh, the, the way the orthodoxy is um, enforced. Um, and I And I think... Coming back to the guidelines, what I found was that they had really, um, what they had done is they had ignored, since 1980 when the guidelines were launched, they had consistently ignored all of the rigorous clinical trials funded by the National Institutes of Health, you know, tens of thousands of people, multi-centrist trials. That was really the big age of you know, we, we had a big age of, of nutrition trials where, where people like 50,000 people were funded to be in a, stu in a study. Yeah. Cost $700 million, right? You're talking we, about like the Women's Health Initiative? Yeah, yeah, so the Women's Health Initiative. In order to inform our food policy, 
never reviewed, never included in, in, in the dietary guidelines reviews. And of course it showed that a low fat diet had no benefit for cardiovascular disease or right. cancer prevention, but was not incorporated in the guidelines. And I mean, were you able to ask people on the guidelines committee, why was this study not looked at? Could they give you an answer to that question? Well, you know, the statement that all these studies had been excluded, right, is is a statement that refers to every single successive di dietary guideline committee. So I couldn't ask this dietary guideline committee, you know, why are you ignoring the Women's Health Initiative results or the Boeing trial results? Same thing, NIH funded, showed the same thing, that low-fat diet had absolutely no ability to protect against cardiovascular di disease, diabetes, or obesity. So it's kind of the collective fault of all these committees. You really can't blame the latest one. Mm -hmm. And, and you know, what would it require to then reject your entire guidelines? I mean, that is, you, I, I think that's something that would be very hard for a committee to do, to turn around and say, you know, actually, we just got it completely wrong the last 35 years. Right. And so, but they've done clever things. Like they, they I would say clever for them. Like they have, in fact, when all those studies show that low, that the low fat diet didn't work, really didn't work. Not only that, but it, the, the 2015 dietary guideline report says, um, low fat diets actually increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. Well, that's terrible. We've been on a diet that seems to have been increasing, uh, cardiovascular disease in, in America. Whoops. So what they did is, but they can't say, okay, we're no longer recommending a low fat diet. They sort of tiptoe away from it. There's no press release. There's no there's no marketing materials to the American public to say, you know, we're no longer telling you to eat a low fat, a formal low fat diet recommendation. And the reality is if you go and look at their formularies for what they're recommending, like, and when I mean the formularies, like what's the breakdown of protein uh, and, and fat and carbohydrates that they send off to the schools and say like, you have to follow this. They're still low fat, right? You know, they're still, they're still low fat. So they're de facto still low fat recommendations. So how does that happen? If you get rid of the low fat recommendation in the guidelines, why hasn't that trickled down yet to, to the downstream effects of the, of the military, of the school, of the hospital? Because they, uh, what they did was very clever. They made a kind of rhetorical shift and they said, we're getting rid of the word low fat. We're going to say instead that we recommend these dietary patterns, yeah. Mediterranean, U.S. style, which is basically DASH, and vegetarian. And here's, if you want to follow those patterns, this is the amount of carbohydrates, protein, and fat that you need to eat, and it's a low-fat diet. Right. So they've just shifted the label. We're not going to say we recommend a low-fat diet, but here are the low-fat diets we recommend. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> okay, I see. And it's hilarious, you know, because like the, the low-fat Mediterranean diet that they recommend, that's not the Mediterranean that, diet that was studied that showed benefits, right? Right, right. So when, when we talk about the science involved in nutrition, we're frequently talking about the epidemiological studies, the observational trials that aren't meant to make causative conclusions. And that makes up the vast majority of nutritional science. and to, I guess, the defense of science, you know, PhD students need to crank out a paper for their thesis. You know, scientists and PhDs need to publish to maintain their, their grants and their position in the university. So what's the easiest way to publish studies is to data mine and to do retrospective observational trials. So that's why we have the majority of our data is that. But is that good enough to inform public policy and to make a recommendation for what the world should be eating? Well, there's obviously debate on this issue, and I would say no, um, because if you look at the studies of nutrition, especially nutritional 
nutritional epidemiology is especially weak because it's based on data where they ask people, you know, from food frequency questionnaires, you know, what did you, how many cups of milk did you have in the last six months? Or how often do you have milk every week over the last six months? And then how many cups of ribs have you had? And, you know, it's very, people, those are very inaccurate tools for gathering uh, information about diet, number one. And, uh, you know, people lie. People lie because I'm not going to tell you I had you know, six candy bars. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and so they take that very weak data and then they try to, and they, there's, there's, and they do multiple comparisons with tons of outcomes. And it's called, there's, there's all sort of concern about, uh, mining the, like P hacking is what it's called, but it's statistically, it's not very valid what they do. And then there are all these confounders. Do you, you know, do you, are you healthy in other ways that affect your eating and things we can't even measure? And so, you know, and nutritional epidemiology tends to yield results that are always super weak. Mm. They're not, I mean, the great success of an epidemiology is in the finding that heavy smokers, pack a day smokers and more had 10 to 35 times higher risk of lung cancer than never smokers. Right. Okay. 10 to 35 times. And so the in, odds ratio as it's usually reported was... So that's 10 to 35, right? Yeah. That's what it's the, the relative risk or odds ratio. In nutritional epidemiology, you rarely see results that are greater than 1.2. Right. 1.2. So magnitude though. Yeah. And you know, yeah. it, you know, once you factor in something like, you know, conf potential confounding, it just seems like it's very hard to take those results seriously. So they say they control for smoking, they control for obesity, they control for blood pressure. You know, they, they try to statistically control for these other factors, but isn't that, isn't that good enough? Well, you know, they don't, uh, there's many things that they may not have measured that if, may affect your health. Uh, maybe your exposure to plastics, maybe what you, you know, ate when you were a child. Maybe, you know, maybe they don't under, you know, people who tend to follow the guide or tend to follow their doctor's advice do uh, a lot of things like they tend to um, take their pills more or they, maybe they go to more cultural events and spend time with their family. I mean, all of these things are like sort of, or maybe they sleep better. I don't right. even think they ask about sleep. Yeah. You can't measure all that. So, and then, and then how do they adjust for it? Do you know that our, our major, uh, epidemiological databases upon which most of our dietary guidelines are based are the ones out of Harvard, um, the nurses health study. So I have an email from the head of that study saying, you know, we, we don't really accurately measure sugar. So they can't. Sugar. So they can't adjust for sugar. Wow, that's unbelievable. Well, it, as it if is. sugar matters. <laughs> ah, it doesn't matter. I don't need to worry about it. They didn't used to think it matters. So they didn't ask people. Yeah. So there's just you know, and I think that there's now we really have to talk about the bias of the researchers, um, which is another kind of bias that enters in. I mean, you know, Harvard being really the major publisher of these studies, and the head of that department is Walter Willett, and he has become a vegan. He says he eats meat one or two times a year and he yeah. talks at vegan conferences and he, he really believes in veganism for whatever reasons, I don't know. But that clearly affects their work. You barely ever find a paper coming out of Harvard now that is not plant food better than animal food. Plant, you know, animal food dangerous, plant oils or, you know, vegetable oils better than animal fats. I mean, that 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 is, it's almost impossible to see the the, the constant stream of pro-plant publications and not think about the bias of the people who are uh, behind them.
And what about industry influence? Um, you know, the cereal makers and the processed oil makers and all the, the snack foods, low-fat snack foods, do they have a, a foothold in the guidelines as well? Or No, it's such a pure and perfect process. <laughs> I just don't know why you could impugn that. <laughs> well, but I think it's important to realize, yeah. like, you know, are they directly funding it or is it more of an indirect action? You know, there's how- so many steps at which uh, the food industry, and I need to add also the pharmaceutical industry, you know, yeah. one of the, you, you ought to be asking your nutri- local nutrition scientist, why are you taking pharmaceutical money? Aren't you supposed to be working on nutrition right. solutions? That makes no sense at but all. But they all, almost all take pharmaceutical money. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they have an interest in um, in the drugs or the Optifast or the Metafast or whatever meal replacement things, you know, that are, that that work on obesity. Or as I just found out, you know, the, the, the drugs that contains speed, what it's called legal speed to help you with, with weight loss. I mean, you, you want to know if your local doctor is, is getting funding from those kinds of companies, mm. right? Or your local nutrition scientist. So food companies, pharmaceutical companies, and the supplement companies, supplement com- company, companies are a big player because they, remember I said our dietary guidelines are n- nutritionally insufficient. Right. They depend, they sell those nutrients, They sell them uh, in refined and rich grains and they sell them to consumers and they say, oh, you know, if you're not getting enough of this because you can't eat meat because the guidelines tell you not to eat meat, here are the supplements. So how do they influence our whole process? They start with, I mean, at every level, they've been doing this really since the 1940s is when the first organization was founded by food companies and their major goal was to influence nutrition science. And they, you know, they're really clever. They do it at the start. They fund the researchers. Uh, they give them grants or they fly them places or they underwrite their conferences or they um, they pay for their the journals to to uh, they pay for ads in the journals where the researchers want to publish their papers or they and then they up you know and so they want to do it at the very or they endow chairs um, right. and or they fund a research assistant you know at Harvard for again to go back to they have you know a, a research assistant that funded funded by Unilever maker one of the largest vegetable oil makers in the world. So interesting that doesn't that doesn't directly control the trials, but that type of funding is the type of funding that would likely dry up if the trials weren't beneficial to that company. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and a researcher knows if I don't come out with a publication that pleases my funder, I'm not going to ever be able to go back and dip back into the, yeah. their funding again, yeah. right? And so, I mean, there's that kind of like, even if they are not involved in the design of the trial or in the outcome of the trial, you know, you know that you have to have a trial that does not displease your funder if you want them coming back, you know? So it's clear. So, yeah, and so then and then upstream, so then they fund, the, they they advertise in the journals and the journals are the ones that they know that their funding would dry up if they don't accept these papers or those papers. And then they fund conferences and then they fund, uh, you know, scientific conferences. And then, yes, they do. They're right around the table at the dietary guideline meeting. I mean, they, I've spent time in Washington now and it's really shocking to me. I mean, yeah. The food companies are basically all over lobbying on this stuff. And, you know, we usually hear, I think the media, the impression that we get from media stories is like it's just mainly the meat industry that has manipulated the guidelines. And I don't even understand that narrative because meat has been a big loser. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) if they're such a powerful industry, you know, wow, I don't, you know, their results are pretty bad because... (laughs) They tried to take meat out of the guidelines in 2015 as a healthy food. Hmm. But every industry is is there. Yeah. You know, the beverage, the food industry, the sugar industry, the you know, the 
the vegetable oil companies, the grocery manufacturers of America. And so I actually went, I've been to a couple of, I was invited to go to a couple of USDA listening sessions where they apparently listened to our point of view. And, um, and, and, uh, and I was sitting around the table and like, I was the only person who wasn't from industry. Wow. So, I mean, there are, there are other interest groups, but, um, but I think that, you know, they really have a place at the table. Yeah. And they they really shouldn't. I mean, that's one of the dramatic things. So I guess it's one thing to, to sit back and point out the, uh, the problems with the guidelines and the problems with the process. And then it's another thing to do something about it. And that's where, you've really sort of shined as the executive director of the Nutrition Coalition to really sort of put your hat in the ring and say, we're going to do something to change it. And interestingly, it's where a lot of criticism against you has come as well to say, you're just kind of pro-meat and you're trying to push your agenda into into the guidelines when really your message seems to be, we're trying to push science into the guidelines and you're trying to make a difference. So tell us how your work at the Nutrition Coalition is, is trying to improve the science of the guidelines. Right. So, well, after I saw the guidelines and I realized like how little evidence was, you know, how they had, they weren't relying on any kind of rigorous evidence. I thought somebody has to, this just has to change. Right. And so, um, I founded the nutrition coalition and, um, the first thing that we did was we got a, uh, we got Congress to mandate the first ever outside peer review of the dietary guidelines by the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, and they appropriated a million dollars to do it. And they said, nobody who served in a dietary guideline committee can be on the panel that reviews it, (laughs) which was, um, and they came out with a decent report. That report said, I mean, it was sort of an echo of my, uh, the work that I had done saying, look, this, the guidelines, they lack scientific rigor. They don't use proper systematic reviews of the science. Like there's, and in order to be credible, they need to be redesigned. Well, that's a pretty powerful thing to say, right? And so that was a good report to have. Um, Our group, our only agenda is to have evidence-based guidelines. Um, And we, you know, we just want the science properly reviewed. You know, we want to, we, you know, there's sort of a pyramid of science, you know, like, up at the top is randomized controlled clinical trials. That's the gold standard because that can show cause and effect. And kind of down here below is epidemiology, which only shows associations and tends to be more wrong than right um, when tested in more rigorous clinical trials, right? That's the pyramid. In the way the dietary guidelines do that, they do it upside down, right? So we just want a proper systematic review of the guidelines. There are various standards for, you know, there are various systems of, of review, uh, Cochrane, Gray, there, you know, there, there's, there's like guidelines for how to do guidelines right. and they just need to be followed. And we, all we want is evidence-based guidelines. So wherever that evidence goes, we will follow. But we have also said, you know, we think here's where the guidelines do not reflect the current evidence. Um, and you know, one of those is, uh, we think that, that there should be just regular meat and, and regular dairy, you know, not low fat meat and low fat dairy, because this, we do not believe the science supports the saturated fat recommendations. Right. We do not believe the science supports the recommendation on salt that you should eat lower is better on salt. Turn, there's a lot of science out there to show that it's much more likely to be a J-shaped curve where salt consumption is, is, you know, a moderate salt consumption, moderate amount is, is ideal in terms of cardiovascular risk, right? Or we could at least say 
let's just, if there's scientific controversy, let's just back off that recommendation and say, we really need to get to the bottom of this, you know? And That's consider- a fantastic point that, that the, the level of confidence behind the recommendation has to match the level of security within, with the science. Exactly. And that's a complete disconnect right now. So right. And important. so, you know, and our, our main argument is like, let's just reverse out of the wrong recommendations that we have. Can yeah. we not just, that would help level the playing field for the new science to come in. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least like, let's just not have, you know, according to the principle, at least do no harm. Let us not be recommending high carbohydrate diets for all Americans. Right. I mean, this is the other thing. The dietary guidelines are supposed to be for all Americans. Um, but you know, we, we live in a world now where according to the latest study, 17% of us are metabolically healthy. So that means 83% of us are not, and we're not covered by the guidelines. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, the, so the work of our group is really just about trying to promote proper scientific review of the guidelines. So they are based on rigorous science, right? So a lot of that probably has to do with who the committee is and cause it's up sort of up to the committee to decide what is rigorous science where really, like you said, there are guidelines on how to do this, but it appears the committees up to this point haven't been doing that way. So, I mean, is it just because there are too many people who believe that epidemiological science is good science or is it because they're protecting their own interests? Or, I mean, I know that's sort of a hard question to answer with specificity, but it, it boggles my mind why people on the committee don't realize that the epidemiological evidence is so weak and they need to be looking for better quality of evidence. It just seems, it seems really just commonplace that they should understand that. Right. They should, it should just be us really making the guidelines. <laughs> um, well, I, it is, it's a complex answer and there is no one answer, mm. right? So one thing is, is that epidemiology precisely because, uh, as you said, it's like, you know, it's a paper a week. You can just get your mimeograph machine out there pretty much. There's so much epidemiology out there that has become the dominant science in the nutrition world. So the Dietary Guideline Committee, like the last one, was uh, more than half epidemiologists. There's only supposed to be one epidemiologist on wow. the Dietary Guideline Committee. I mean, if you look at there, they they, they want to have a variety of expert, different kinds of expertise on the guideline. Now, now we have more than half. Uh, and there is, you know, there's group think that has gone on in, like it goes on in any field, but in nutrition, the group think is, you know, towards the plant-based diet. So we did an analysis of the last, the 2015 Dietary Guideline Committee. It turns out 11 out of 14 of them were, had professed to believe in a vegetarian or plant-based diet or themselves were vegetarian. Wow, not exactly balanced. Not exactly balanced. Yeah. And they are not going, so, so these are not people to challenge the status quo. Yeah. And I think that, you know, uh, and the government doesn't want to, challenge the status quo because you have a system where the bureaucrats, I mean, the bureaucrats in charge of the guidelines, the person at the very top of that little group, uh, she's been doing this for 25 years. She's not going to turn around. They're not going to all turn around and say, you know, we've been wrong. And they really run this whole process. And then the political people who've been, you know, the the ones there now are all put in there by Trump. They have to decide, is the guidelines going to be their top political priority? Are they going to take on the entire pharmaceutical and medical and food establishment to do that? And and I mean, so uh, the answer is, on this go around, because the 2020 committee has just been announced, the answer to that question is, 
No. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about the 2020 They're committee. They're not going to take that on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did a tremendous amount of work, and you being you and the Nutrition Coalition, so active on social media and in the media in general to say, you know, write to these people to let them know we need better in 2020, that we need to include other people on the guidelines committee and a great grassroots efforts to try and make a change. But it seems like it, they, they weren't open to listening to it, were they? Well, so let me talk about the good side. Okay, There's some good, good things that we did. We like to be positive. Yeah. Well, and I want to say it's important. I mean, it's important to understand like we're the first group anywhere in the world trying to change the guidelines. We were the first group to come to D.C. to do anything. I can't tell you, like, I go into congressmen and women's offices and I present sort of the case about why the guidelines haven't worked. And they've they've just never seen this information. And they're like, nobody has ever presented these arguments. Wow. Like, and the argument is... Actually, people follow the guidelines and they follow the exercise, you know, recommendations pretty well. The problem is not that people are lazy and fat and don't follow the guidelines. The problem is in the guidelines themselves. Right. And so a lot of people respond to that argument because many people really have, you know, a not too distant memory of, of their grandfather or something, you know, surviving on bacon and eggs every morning. They're like, you know what? You're right. That just never made sense to me. So we do have a lot of support, but we have to recognize that this is the first step. And this is the first time these people have heard any of these arguments. And, you know, uh, so, but even so I would say, you know, between my giving testimony at USDA and talking to people, they announced the list of topics to be reviewed for the dietary guidelines this year ahead of time. And on that list was for the very first time, low carbohydrate diets and saturated fats. And in my testimony, I specifically recommended that they do that. And then we, sent in a whole bunch of comments during the comment period. We were responsible for half of all the public comments. Really? Uh-huh. That's and, fantastic. And they kept those topics in. So that was, you know, it means that low-carb diets will be reviewed. It means that saturated fat will be reviewed. Those are two areas where we feel the recommendations do not reflect the current and uh, uh, most rigorous science. So that, I think, is a success. Um, but then we put forward and we worked really hard to promote the candidacies for to get on the committee of especially two really, really top-rate evidence-based policy people. I mean, actually the two top people in the world, like John Iwanides from Stanford University, who is just, I mean, he's just the, the, the rock star of this. And, and in Canada, sort of his counterpart in Canada is named Gordon Guyot. He founded the term evidence-based medicine. Um, and so, and, and, uh, and, and is sort of a descendant of David Sackett. Some people may know that name and, and, but they're like amazing people. We help prepare their nomination packages. I can't tell you what it is like to take down a 600 page resume and try to reduce it to 15 pages, which is what you have to <laughs> submit for, to, for the nomination. And like, and they have no conflicts of interest. So like, they're just, they're they're the most incredibly qualified people to be on that committee. Right. And they would act, I think, you know, as you're saying, why doesn't the committee make the right decisions? I think these people could act a little bit like referees in the room. You know, they could say, look, great point, but that's an epidemiological study. What does the randomized controlled clinical trial say? So um, we failed in, in, I mean, we got thousands of people to write Sunny Purdue and, um, but we did not get either of those people on the committee. And I was told by somebody at USDA, well, we just didn't want that level of disruption. Wow. Which means like we don't wanna we don't wanna disrupt the status quo. We don't wanna change. Right? Yeah. So that's not good news. But there is a little good news, which is that they did put on a 
it was a 20 person committee now. If anybody wants to, I would just put up a blog post if anybody wants to read it on nutritioncoalition.us. And it talks about some of the committee members. I would say that the good news is that there's a woman who has, um, Lydia Bazano, who has done research in low carb, low carbohydrate diets, is aware of the field and the literature. Um, is she a Jeff Fallick or a Sarah Hallberg? No, but she's certainly somebody who's been in the field. And there's a woman named Heather Lighty from, um, I can't remember where, but she's she's somebody whose research focus is on how increased protein might be able to help fight obesity. So somebody you know, who's sympathetic to animal proteins. Um, so again, on the yin yang of all of this, on the, on the other hand, there's, uh, there's a lot of old guard people on the committee, people really committed to calories in calories out and, um, uh, energy balance people who, have, who have been promoting the guidelines to people who've been on the dietary guidelines committee before one of them twice. So, you know, that's what I would consider a pretty, and they're a senior. Yeah. They're not young. So I, but I think there's still an opportunity, uh, during this period to try to educate people and try to get good information to them. And, you know, we'll, we'll keep doing that. And if that doesn't work, <laughs> you know, we'll have our million metabolically wounded March on Washington. <laughs> <laughs> With no shortage of people to fill the seats for sure. Uh, but I think you're right. You do need to be congratulated for the positives. I mean, for getting uh, saturated fat and low carb as as topics of interest to be reviewed, that definitely needs to be encouraged. And I'm glad the the maybe the lack of outright success of getting people on the committee isn't doesn't seem to be deterring you. So that that's great. Now, in this whole process, though, kind of what do you what do you see as your role in in social media in the war between veganism and and meat? I mean, I've, I've been in a number of conversation with, uh, vegans over social media and come to the conclusion that they're, they're not really open to having a scientific argument. It's not about, it's, it's, you know, you'll come back, you'll spend time showing them studies. I mean, I can think of one doctor in particular who's just, you know, I, at least 50 people have pointed out all the science to him and he's, you know, he just, he just snaps right back to his epidemiological studies and he just doesn't want to learn. So now I just largely mute those people because I feel like it's a distraction. Yeah. And I also know that, um, I mean, I have nothing against vegans. I just think that they should stop. They should just follow their diet and, and, um, and that's fine. And then let people who are healthy on different kinds of diets follow their diets. But it's been complicated and, and, and become more complex now because the money behind veganism has become um, much more significant. And I mean, vegans in some way, uh, there are many of them who are pure and ideological, but they are being used by a set of corporate interests now. And there's vast amounts of money behind them. So, uh, and that is sort of, sort of the animal right activist money, uh, which is, which is massive. Uh, the people who just believe we should not kill animals at all. Um, pharmaceutical money, you know, anybody who's threatened by low carb, is uh, is going to get behind veganism because veganism is sort of the antithesis of the low-carb movement, right? right? So big pharma, they do not profit if people get healthy from nutrition. You know, average American is on five pills. Those pills go away and that's, you know, a zeroed-out profit line for those pharmaceutical companies. I mean, you just can't be too cynical about their need to make a profit and and how they do that. Right. Um, and there's the environmental movement now that's behind them saying, you know, it's better for the planet. 
and uh, the the chemical companies who are the real polluters, they would love to have an agenda whereby we could blame all global warming on cows rather than their activities. Um, and of course, you know, what I call big carb, <laughs> but you know, all the, the, you know, most of the, the products in a supermarket are made up of a grain, sugar and vegetable oils. Right. That's what my pro most products are made of. And all those interests, including the supermarkets themselves and all the grocers, manufacturers, I mean, they, they depend on, on people buying those products. And well, those products are vegan. Those products are vegan. Yeah. I mean, um, so there's all of those interests. I think I didn't realize, I mean, I've sort of known that there are these corporate, all these various ideological and corporate interests behind the vegans. Um, and I didn't, uh, I didn't quite put it all together until this report, Eat Lancet came out. Right. Which I was just going to say, about. I was going to say that's a perfect transition to Eat Lancet because it points out how sort of the vegan movement and you can roll that into the anti-low carb movement can exist on a couple, couple different levels. There's sort of the ethical ideological level, there's the environmental level, there's the health level. And the science applies to the last two, but not the first two. You can't really apply science to ethics necessarily in that setting. But what, what, what troubles me is when they're all blurred together, when they're all brought together to try and push an agenda. And I think that's kind of what happened with the Eat Lancet report. So Georgia Eat has done a phenomenal job of dissecting the science or lack thereof um, of the Eat Lancet report, but it goes beyond the science because there is sort of an agenda. And that's where I, I think you've really promoted a lot of, of um, information that wasn't known just by reading the report. So tell us a little bit about the background of the Eat Lancet and and what you see as, as the motivation behind it. <laughs> Um, well, I, I, one of the things that I did with that report was, um, really was to show the incredible financial interests behind it. Um, and so, and they're behind the whole Eat Lancet project. So all these different industries that I just mentioned, you know, the chemical companies, the pharma companies, the big food companies like Mars, PepsiCo, all the junk food companies, they're all part of this international business council that is that fund that funded the i think it was a 40 city re tour release of the eat lancet report and the huge amounts of publicity that they that it got they funded that whole massive pr effort uh including like a release at the world economic forum at davos getting people to you know an arnold schwarzenegger speaking out in it in new york and that's, that all takes a lot of money and it all came from those companies that all of whom stand to benefit if they can, uh, so they, they stand to benefit if they can demonize low carb, right? Uh, they stand to benefit if they can blame cows for global warming. So they all have kind of different interests, but they all come together on this. Right. Uh, so, um, and then I also looked at the, the financial conflicts of interest behind Walter Willett, who is the chief author and really the, I think, the, the, maybe even the architect of this report, but he was certainly the leading scientific author on it. And he's the one head of the Harvard School of Public Health for over 25 years, just retired, but has become a vegan himself, ideologically motivated, I think. But I decided to look also at his financial conflicts of interest and you know, came up with a seven page document, um, about, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars that he gets from all the nut industry, um, over the year that Harvard gets. Interesting. Um, and so there, and, and Eat Lancet happens to include a recommendation for like a 500% increase in the consumption of nuts. 
And they get a, they're very closely connected to Unilever. As I said, they have a, you know, a permanent ongoing scholarship and, and Walter Willett publishes with Unilever employees. Um, so they have this very big connection to this vegetable oil giant, Unilever. Um, I think up until just recently, the biggest manuf manufacturer of vegetable oils in the world. So, um, and so I went, th so there's, there's just a massive amount of corporate interest into shifting, uh, Americans onto this plant-based diet from this, from a multitude of different interests. Um, but you know, they what try they stand and package to benefit. it as yeah. it's going to help the environment and help your health. And it's but, genius. Yeah. I mean, I think what they've done is absolute genius because, you know, if you're not going to become a vegan for health reasons, because actually that's been debunked and it's a nutritionally insufficient diet, who could deny that? You should do it for the planet. You know, we right. should, and so, and that argument is very strong for people, for young people today. Um, that's a very powerful argument. So this, this kind of, I didn't even mention that the Barilla Pasta Foundation, who has, um, you know, Barilla is the biggest pasta maker in the world, a huge food company in, in Europe. They're one of the members of the Behind Eat Um and the Lancet report, and they have this foundation that's been for three or four years now funding, you know, scientific conferences on why you should eat more carbo carbohydrates, why you should move to a plant-based diet. And they're the ones, I think, who came up with this whole double pyramid idea that the, that the pyramid to, to, to improve health was also the pyramid to improve uh, reduction in global warming, you know, reverse global warming. So there was this idea better for you, better for the planet. Like that's a great catchy slogan. Better for sure you, better, the, better for the planet. I saw it in like, you know, 50 news stories when they came up with that idea. I think it was in 2015. I thought, oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> this is, it's, so now you're fighting on multiple fronts, which is a really smart tactic. Right. Because right. you can, you know, you know, the science is really on our side in terms of what is a healthier diet. There are, uh, you know, interesting fact. The last Dietary Guideline Committee came out with a vegetarian diet recommendation. They were, as I said, 11 of 14 of them were following or advising a vegetarian diet at the time. They could find, they, they must have gone looking pretty hard for them. They could, they could find zero randomized controlled clinical trials to support a vegetarian diet for any kind of health outcome. Wow. Zero randomized controlled trials for something that's being promoted as the healthy diet. One of the three USDA recommended healthy dietary patterns. That's disturbing. Supported by what they called limited evidence, which is the lowest grade of evidence that you can grant. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, this, that you can't really make a scientific argument for the healthiness of that diet, uh, except for with epidemiology. So now they have the global warming argument. And, you know, most of it, I, I'm not a global warming expert. So, but I can tell you that looking at the science just a little bit, I, it seems to me a little shaky. Right. <laughs> and talking to people like, uh, whether it's Peter Ballerstadt, who we had on, on this podcast, or other people who are more familiar with soil, um, I guess, soil characteristics and science and also ruminant science, it does seem that that science is very shaky and can easily be twisted. I mean, that's the other thing. Depending on how you measure it, what variables you include or don't include, it's easy to twist the message. And that's what's really concerning because it, it, I don't think we're getting the full picture. Um, but the way they package it certainly sounds very convincing. And Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that is, uh, it's a tool that, the, that, that it's a kind of public relations tool, which is to pretend that the science is settled. You know, that's what they did on saturated fats and cholesterol. Now they're doing it on this, this, this global warming issue. 
pretend that it's settled. This science is so young. It's so debated. It's so, it's like, it's, it's in its infancy really. And, um, you know, I'll just give you like the one example. You can just take a tiny example. Like when they calculated the global greenhouse gases for animal agriculture, they included all of the externalities and all the, you know, the various kind of knock-on effects um, and all the inputs. When they did it for transportation, they only included the immediate effects without looking at any of the larger externalities and larger picture of, you know, well, what about the steel that makes the car? So, um, it's a, it's just an area where the best you can say, look, this science is really unsettled. Mm -hmm. So let us not rush to policy. Yeah. Again, making statements and conclusions that are out of proportion to the certainty of the evidence. Yeah. I mean, just going back to the dietary guidelines, the origin of the guidelines was making a statement about what a whole population should do based on very weak evidence and just saying, this is our best bet. Yeah. So this has been a lot of sort of the problems and the negatives and, and the controversies, but I guess there's some hope too, right? I mean, just, just hearing people being, being able to find these conflicts of interest and pointing them out and being able to point out how the science is shaky. I mean, there's some hope that there's this groundswell that people aren't just going to roll over and accept this as, as fact. I mean, do you feel hopeful or optimistic about, about being able to counteract some of these messages? Yeah. I mean, you know, it just depends on me on what day you're catching me, <laughs> <laughs> but I would say, you know, the, the, what do we, you know, here's what to be hopeful for. Like this huge groundswell of people who are curing themselves by ignoring the guidelines. They right. are a potent force. They're passionate. They, you know, I hear from them all the time. I'm sure you do too. And, and they, they want change. And, and, uh, like there's just nothing as, as I think moving to people as, as recovering your health, like when you've been a lifelong depressive or diabetic or, oh, I didn't have to amputate my leg after all. And so, and that's an enormous passionate group of people that's growing. The science is growing, you know, I mean, really month to month, there's some paper about, oh, you know what, Verda's latest Verda's latest uh, data on, you know, at two years, uh, they still, they maintained their reversal rates on diabetes. And then, you know, papers are coming out that are showing it's sustainable, it works, or, you know, the science is evolving. And I think that to an increasing number of people, I mean, especially medical doctors, it's, it's you know, medical doctors come with a more open mind and they're taught about evidence-based medicine and they are responsive to data. And they, and so I think that's another way in which we will see paradigm shift happen. Um, I don't know. I think, I think that that's a hopeful statement about doctors because the, the flip side is that doctors have been doing things the same way for 20 years and are going to be very reluctant to change. But you're right. That statement that, that they should be responsive to data, but more importantly, they should be responsive to patient improvements. I mean, when, cause that's the story I hear from most low carb doctors, like, wow, the difference I saw in the health of my patients was shocking to me. Yeah. And that's what carries the snowball effect. So that's where my help, my yeah. hope is from that perspective. Yes. I, I completely think you're right. I think that, you know, I just talked to a doctor yesterday, um, and he said, uh, and actually there are many doctors like this, you know, I, I just wanted to give up being a doctor because all I was doing was overseeing people's gradual, decline and more pills every year and getting worse every year. And he said, and then I discovered this, that I could heal my patients. And right. that was such a joy to me. That's why I went into medicine in the first place. Yeah. And so, so I think that's going to change. And I see the change, uh, 
you know, wherever I go, you know, now if I have a book signing and there are a hundred people in line, um, you know, half of them come up to me and the first thing they're like, well, 50 pounds down, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, you know, went on the low carb diet and, you know, some of these are just farmers and, um, and, and they are, I would say when I started out in 2014, nobody, nobody had like any idea what low carb was or what a ketogenic diet was. And so, or had thought about saturated fat. So, and you really see this change sort of sweeping across the land and we do have this fight at a really high level, but, um, I think that, and it's, it involves trying to change the way that influencers think and the media thinks and our policymakers think. Um, but you know, I think that even like the modest success that we've had so far and, and the, I think that we, you know, I think we will get there now. It's interesting. Even when I go to, you know, into an office in a, in a, like a congressional office, or if I go and meet somebody, you know, somebody in the room will be ketogenic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll probably say thank you for the work you're doing. And so it's just, it's sort of sweeping the nation and, you know, DC cannot be a bubble forever. So, right. Right. Well, anyway, thank you for the work you're doing, for your advocacy, and uh, for rallying the troops. And thank you for being the sharp end of the spear as thank well. You. And we really appreciate. That. Well, I want to say one more thing, yes, which is that ahead. because you brought up the subject of meat and industry and all of that, and the attacks that have been made, that the, that our group, the Nutrition Coalition, does not receive any industry funding. I do not receive any industry funding and never have. And so if people are interested in this cause and would like to donate to us, we survive solely. We survive pretty much on just like uh, on donations from people and a few uh, rich diabetics who like, <laughs> were like, everybody should know this. So yeah. um, so it's, it's, a, it's a worthy cause. And that was nutritioncoalition.us. Yes. Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate you joining us today on the Diet Doctor podcast. Thank you. It's great talking to you.